Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died or fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have actually perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Lord is risen, and the Lord is risen indeed, as we like to say in the tradition of the church. Now, on this Easter Sunday, I have a a thought experiment for us to do together. I wonder what you might think about when you think about what you want to pass on to your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. Have you ever thought about what kind of inheritance you would like to leave behind what kind of legacy you would like to leave behind. Uh, for some of you, you might consider uh, leaving behind actual financial wealth. Uh, that's not a problem for my family. <laughs> we won't uh, worry about such things. But you might have oil or gas leases or property or livestock or homes or even cash that you can pass on to your children and grandchildren and so on. You know, another thing you can pass on as inheritance is your family culture whether it's good or bad, right? Uh, We pass on cultural markers like integrity or compassion or hard work. 
or a sense of humor or joy. And we can also pass on things like cynicism or racism or hate or pessimism. Certainly some things we desire to pass on as an inheritance and other things we wish could stop in our generation and not go beyond that. You know, our text today is not a traditional Easter text. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 26. And I hope you'll go back and read that carefully because I think it's pretty powerful. Though today we do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And so I want us to meditate on this small part of this letter written some 2,000 years ago, written even before the Gospels were written down, before the, the biographies of Jesus were written down. This letter was written, and this man named Paul, this church planter, is finishing this long, difficult letter to a new church that's really kind of a mess. And as he does this, he wants to remind them of something that he would like to pass on to them that he received as an inheritance. It's been passed on now for 2,000 years. And we inherit this very beautiful thing. No, this, this chapter of 1 Corinthians is not a traditional Easter text, but it is the essential Easter text of the early church. Might surprise you, right? But this little piece, especially verses 3 through 7, may be the oldest Christian creed that we have in writing today. And it's the essence of the gospel. It's the precious inheritance we receive and pass on to others that Christ died for our sins. We remember that this Maundy Thursday and this Good Friday, that Christ was buried and sealed in the sanctuary that was Christ's tomb, and that Christ was raised on the third day, and indeed today is the third day. Paul goes on to tell us how we can be sure of this, that Christ has died and Christ has risen. And how can we be sure? Because he appeared to so many people around the time this letter was written. Some people were still alive that had seen the risen Christ. And Paul writes, look, look, behold, you can go ask them yourselves. Peter saw Jesus. The disciples saw Jesus. 500 people at one time saw the risen Jesus. And he appeared even to his own brother. And he appeared even to the writer of this letter, Paul. And honestly, that is the part of 1 Corinthians 15 that most people know. If you know this chapter at all, you know this part, the first few verses, and then we stop. Because the rest sounds kind of strange and unusual. Well, Paul, being Paul, has more to say. (laughs) Paul always has more to say. But the next part of his writing might be the most important part, the best part, because it answers an essential question. Not what Easter is, but why we have Easter at all, why it matters, why it's important, why we should celebrate Easter. You might be surprised at Paul's perspective. Something strange happened when Jesus died on the cross in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 27 of the Gospel of Matthew, go look. You'll see it says when Jesus died that many tombs split open and people rose from the dead. Did you ever notice that? That there were more than just Jesus who rose from the dead, that when he died on the cross, it was like these tombs just flung open. You might be surprised to hear it's the early church understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection that death 
is no more. Death is no more? How can that be, really? I mean, we know people still pass away. We have all lost loved ones. If death is no more, then how come people I know and love are not here anymore? Where are they? And that kind of requires us to really dive deep and understand the way that the early church understood the afterlife. This might sound like a weird conversation to have on Easter, but we are talking about death and resurrection. So we do need to talk about afterlife. And the early church church understood the afterlife very differently from you and I. You see, in the biblical tradition, there were lots of different kinds of understanding of the afterlife. In the Hebrew Bible, which is very ancient, even hundreds and hundreds of years older than Jesus, they understood the afterlife to be a kind of gray, lifeless, zombie-like existence. Some in the Hebrew Bible did not even believe in the afterlife at all. You might be surprised to hear. Others believed it was this place called Sheol. Sheol wasn't a happy place, but it wasn't what we would understand as hell today. It wasn't a place of of punishment and torture. It was a place of really non-existence, kind of a, a foggy mist that people went where they were lost. And people didn't want to go to Sheol, but they understood that that was going to be their ultimate fate. That's what they believed. And so as the Bible continues to be written, we see that one of the ways people lived eternally in the Hebrew Bible was to pass things on to their children, to pass land on, to pass their name on. And it's why so many early uh, biblical heroes like Abraham are so upset when they can't have a male child, because that's their way of living on into eternity. They didn't really believe in the kind of afterlife we understand today. But as the Bible continues to be written even more, a few centuries before Jesus, the Jews start to consider the idea that there might be this thing called a resurrection. This thing where people are made new again. They start to think there might be a place where people go that's more or better than Sheol. And at this point, the Greek world has taken over, and Hebrew people are influenced by the Greek world. And so the word Sheol is sort of taken over by the word Hades. You probably heard the word Hades. I don't even know if you remember the old uh, Hercules Disney movie. But the bad guy in that movie was named Hades, and he's the god of the underworld. Hades is a good replacement word for Sheol. It's a, it's a place where everybody goes. Nobody escapes it. It's not particularly good, but it's also not really the place of torture that it's presented to be. In fact, in the Disney movie, it's kind of pretty accurate to see how the souls are spinning around in this sort of lifeless, foggy existence. That's probably why, why people thought, or the way people thought about Hades. But... Hades is an old Greek word. It doesn't mean much to us in the 21st century, which is why it might be helpful for you to know that really the word for Hades that we should use today is not hell. The word we should use for Hades today is death. Capital D, death. It's a place called death. In other words, death was not an occurrence in the ancient world. It wasn't a place, uh, it wasn't a state of being. It was a place that you went when you died It was death with a capital D like Houston or Jacksonville or Tulsa. (laughs) No, I'm not making fun of those towns. Well, maybe a little bit. But death was a place, not a state of being. And when the early church saw that Jesus had gone to this place called death and come back from it, they started to connect all these dots. They saw people rising from the dead after Jesus died, and it started circulating among early Christians that there was something special that happened. 
It's still a fact that we all pass away from this earthly life. What we say in modern language is that we die. But in the Christian mind, death no longer exists. The, the early church understood that when Jesus died, he went to the place called death, the place called Hades, or we might call it today hell, and he emptied it of all the souls who had gone before him, of every person who had died in the history of the world. In early church artwork, this is demonstrated, where Jesus holds the keys to hell and is letting everyone out, and the gates are just broken open, and people are fleeing out of the place called death. So when we say in the Apostles' Creed, if you remember, that Jesus descended to the dead, well, one thing that we can say is that he went to the place called death, and he opened the gates and flung them open wide and released everyone who had died before him. Death is no more. That place is empty. It's gone. But what do we say knowing that people still pass away from this life? Well, it's interesting to notice in our text today, there's a phrase Paul uses of those who we might say are dead. He says they've fallen asleep. See, the early church got this. They stopped using the language of dying. The early church thought of people as having fallen asleep. They didn't go to the place called death because it was no more. And so the church proudly proclaimed Jesus had conquered death. They understood that people do not die. And I wonder why we've lost that, church. Why do we believe that people still die? People don't die anymore. People no longer go to the place called death because Jesus emptied it out. It's not like he emptied it out so we could just fill it back up again. People now fall asleep, not literally, but in a metaphorical sense. No one ever permanently dies again. Jesus eliminated that possibility. So it begs the question, why do we as Christians fear death? Because that makes us do a lot of stupid things, doesn't it? Being afraid of death leads us to arm ourselves with massive armories in order to protect our families and ourselves. To, to escape death, we do wild things. We hurt other people. We do harm. <laughs> We're scared of our own shadows sometimes. Why do we anguish? Why do we fear dying? Now, I don't mean to minimize the pain we feel when someone we love is absent from us. I mean, I feel pain when even when my wife travels a small distance for work. If I don't see her for a day or two, it's hard. It's painful. And I remember when my brother served in Iraq and overseas 20 years ago. I remember the pain and anxiety of not being able to speak with him or know if he was okay. And those experiences are just a tiny taste of the experience of actually losing a loved one, someone who does fall asleep and who is away from us. That's a painful experience. I don't want to downplay that. I've experienced it in my own life. And, you know, we have those experiences where we miss someone at the Thanksgiving table. We miss jokes during a baseball game. We miss someone's handiwork when something's broken around the house, something that they were able to fix. I know the pain of missing grandma's cooking or grandpa's stories. And I know many of you know the pain of losing someone as well. But we are given this beautiful book, and the writers of this beautiful book called the Bible have given us 2,000 years of faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and they've passed an inheritance on to us. As they have fallen asleep, they've left us an inheritance, something better than a financial inheritance, something more than land or oil leases, something more than family culture. 
Now we've received a greater inheritance because we have had passed on to us one simple thing, and that is called hope. Because we no longer believe people die. They simply go to sleep. It's a teaching of the ancient church that death has been conquered and dying is no more, and those who pass away from us are simply asleep until the day when Christ comes in final victory. And as we say at our communion liturgy, we all feast at his heavenly banquet. And this is why we celebrate Easter. This is why the resurrection matters. And so I would like to start a tradition with Kaylee community every Easter that we read the sermon the Paschal Sermon of John Chrysostom. Yes, John Chrysostom, John with the golden mouth. So either he named himself that or someone gave him that name. He probably wasn't born John Chrysostom. Some 1,600 years ago in the very early church, he gave an Easter sermon that I think sums up what we believe, or what we should believe, but we've lost as Christians. So I'd like to read this. It's a short Paschal Sermon. They preached A lot less than we do nowadays. I'm trying to get it down to the level of when they preached in the early church. And he passed on to us an inheritance of these following words. And so I want to finish with the words of John Chrysostom. Just listen carefully. If anyone be devout for God, let them enjoy this fair and radiant triumphal feast. If anyone be a wise servant, let them rejoicing. Enter into the joy of their Lord. If any have labored long and fasting, let him now receive their reward. If any have struggled from the beginning of the journey, let them today receive their just reward. And if any have come at the third hour, let them also with thankfulness keep the feast. If any have arrived at the sixth hour, let them have no misgivings, because they shall in no way be deprived of reward. If any have delayed until the ninth hour, let them draw near, fearing nothing. If any have waited even until the eleventh hour, let them also be not alarmed at their tardiness, for the Lord who protects their promises will accept the last, even as the first. The Lord gives rest unto them who come at the eleventh hour, even as to them who have journeyed from the first hour. And God shows mercy on the last and cares for the first. To the one God gives, and upon the other God bestows gifts. God accepts the deeds and welcomes the intention and honors and acts of the praise and offerings of both. So enter you all into the joy of your Lord and receive your reward, both the first and the second. You rich and poor hold together, hold this festival. You serious or you irreverent ones, honor today. Rejoice today, both you who have fasted, And you who have disregarded and feasted, the table is full, feast everyone to the full, the calf is fatted, let no one go hungry away. Everyone enjoy all the feast of faith, receive all the riches of loving kindness, let no one grieve their poverty, for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep for their sin, for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death. For the Savior's death has set us free. He that was held prisoner of death has annihilated it. By descending into death, he made it captive. Hell was embittered when it encountered Christ in the lower regions. It was embittered for it was abolished. It was embittered for it was mocked. It was embittered for it was slain. It was embittered for it was overthrown. It was embittered for it was fettered in chains. It took a body 
and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are overthrown. Christ is risen and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life reigns. Christ is risen and not one dead remains in the grave. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto ages and ages. Amen. And amen. Thank you.